Now, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 44. We are continuing in our story of Joseph and his brothers. And we're getting very near to that final plot twist that will come out and show the work of the Lord in the midst of Jacob's family. This morning, as we look at chapter 44, you can kind of think of it as the cliffhanger. Now, praise be the Lord, I won't make you wait until September for chapter 45. But we will see here that the Lord has been building up this crisis in the life of the brothers of Joseph, testing them, seeing the change that has been wrought in their heart. And this morning we look specifically at a group of brothers who have been tested. And so if you would open your Bibles, hear now the very Word of God. The Word of the Lord is completely without error. The Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Genesis 44. Then he, that is Joseph, commanded the steward of his house... Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil with evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found. In Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes. And every man loaded his donkey. And they returned to the city. When Joseph and his brothers came. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. He was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them. What deed is this that you have done? 
Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we we ask you this morning, Lord, to attend your word with power and by your spirit. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you have heard the saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And I think sometimes we take this pithy proverb and we apply it to our lives 
as Christians. And we apply it in the way that we think that the most difficult time to trust in the Lord is when things are going difficult, when there is trouble on the horizon, when there are problems before us. But I think rather the more difficult thing as we see throughout the history of the Bible and even in this passage before us this morning is that the greatest test of our trust in the Lord is when things are going well. When there's food on the table and the house is warm and the car is new. You see, we are tempted to simply rely upon ourselves. We know that we don't need God. When things get tough, then we'll have to call out. But for now, we, I think, somewhat silently look up and say, don't worry, God, I've got this. I know what I'm doing. And this is the kind of test here that Joseph's brothers are facing. They are being tested by the Lord in the midst of what they think is now finally going their way. And so this morning I would like us to see three things from our text. First, we will see the test itself, the test that comes from the Lord. Second, we will see the response of the brothers. And it is twofold. And then third, we will see the change that is evident in the brothers, and specifically in Judah, that the test brings out. Well, let's begin then now by looking at the test that comes to the brothers of Joseph. You see, there is a change in circumstances now at the beginning of this chapter. One thing that has not changed is who is in control. God is still in control. We have to remember the big picture here. The Lord was the one who was with Jacob's family, even as they were going to the promised land. The Lord was the one who brought Joseph to Egypt. It was not simply the work of the brothers and a plan that was hatched to make a little money. God was completely in control of this. He wanted Joseph in Egypt. God followed on His plan, for He was the one who brought the famine. He brought the famine to the entirety of the world, and even to Egypt. And He brought Joseph to the throne to save much people alive. We have to remember that at this point, there is a history of God acting and being in control. And we cannot just simply say that the story begins at chapter 44 and verse 1. Are you tempted to do that in your own life? Do you think about your life today as if somehow God has not been on the scene before this? Perhaps you are at a time getting ready to contemplate college and you wonder if the Lord will answer your prayers and bless you with the school of your choice. You forget as if the Lord was not with you in high school and in grade school and with your parents even before you were born. 
Perhaps there is a moment now as you contemplate marriage. You're on the threshold wondering about how your family will be, how you will raise children, how you will show patience. Where will I live? Where will I work? Oh, I hope God will be with me now. As if the Lord did not bring you to the person you are to marry. As if the Lord was not at work in your life molding your character. Perhaps you think, well... I'm in the twilight of my life. I can see retirement and it's not so far off. My grandkids are around me. I wonder if the Lord will help me to finish well. And we forget that the Lord was with us in the raising of our children, in the working at our offices, in the struggles and trials of life. And you see, we have to look at this chapter in the context of the continual plan of God. God's work in your life is not punctuated. He is not here and gone. Here and gone. He is ever present with His people. And you see, Joseph's brothers had been through a very hard spot. They had been in trouble. They needed food or they would die. They came to Egypt and they were treated very harshly by this stranger who was rough with them and accused them of being spies. They escaped barely with their lives having left behind a brother. And then they had to go back because they were starving again. They're at the end of their rope. They have no food. Their brother is in jail. They are in great fear. This is where we get the saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. You can imagine that the brothers would lean upon the Lord in the midst of the trial that we saw. But you see, now they have gotten through that. They have been proven to be honest. They were feasted by the Grand Vizier himself, second in command, the one after Pharaoh. Their money was shown to be good. They had brought the money back again and said, we did not steal this. And you could almost imagine as they came back the second time to buy grain, they handed the money and they said, oh, no, 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 no. We want a receipt. And and we want two signatures on the receipt. And you keep a copy. Because we're not having this again. But you can imagine. They said, we kept our word. We brought our brother. We brought the money. The money was good. We've been telling you all along, we are honest men. You should have believed us. And now they pack up early in the morning, ready to go. And you can imagine the stories of triumph that they are ready to tell their father, of how they have conquered the difficulties, how not only is Benjamin safe, but look, father, Simeon is with us again. Look what we have done. Things are working out well. You can imagine that they are elated. There is a real sense of security that they have. Do you notice it's almost a comical line at the beginning of this chapter? That they packed up the food, they packed up the money, and they left when it was light. The men sent away with what? with the valuable donkeys, the donkeys that they were so afraid that the Egyptians would steal. And you can imagine they are full of themselves. 
Now, this is a time to be thankful, isn't it? If they remembered how afraid they were at the beginning of this, they would remember to be thankful. Have you ever wondered why throughout the Bible, but especially in the Apostle Paul, there was such an emphasis on thankfulness? Paul, a man who lived by human standards a pretty miserable life, from place to place, beaten, barely escaping cities with his life, shipwrecked, fighting snakes. And he's constantly telling us to be thankful. Why? It's because when we are thankful, our thoughts are brought to the Lord. And that's where their thought should be this morning. So they take off and they are enjoying this change of circumstances. But the question is, is their repentance real? Because you know, when things are hard, when you're worried about your brother in jail and your other brother being killed, you are willing to say and do almost anything. So is it real? Has it reached to the heart? Joseph has a plan here to find out. He puts the money back in their sacks and he takes this silver cup. It's a cup, quite frankly, more like you. I want you to envision in your eyes a punch bowl in which the Egyptians would pour liquids and they would look at the surface of the liquids as they were mixed together, oil and water, or perhaps wine and vinegar. And they would tell the future from the way the liquids moved. And so he tells his steward to take this valuable, and here's an irony, silver bowl, and to place it into the bag of the youngest. So here he puts this bowl of silver, a sign of guilt, in the bags of his brothers who sold him for silver. And you see, he is going to play on their self-confidence. He is going to see where their trust is, where their hearts are when things are going good. And so he takes this bowl and he puts it in Benjamin's sack. And now you have to imagine, this is an absolutely ridiculous thing to steal. This would be like going into the president's office and walking up to his desk and stealing the presidential seal off of the desk. Not five minutes are going to go by before they realize it's gone. And what are you going to do with it? You can't exactly sell it. Who's going to buy this? Um, I'd like to sell you this uh, bowl, divination bowl. It's used by second-in-command of the Pharaoh. Now, if he catches you with it, he'll cut your head off. But hey, who wants to buy it? I mean, it makes no sense. You have to understand here. Joseph is doing this on purpose because this is going to play into their reaction. It's a ridiculous test. There is no reason for them to need God when they are accused of this. They will look at the steward and say, you are nuts. Who on earth would steal this? It's crazy. We didn't even steal the money. That would be something people would steal. But you see, this is really God's test. You know how we said God was in control then? He's in control now. And he is designing this test for their good. It is often asked, what is the difference between 
a temptation and a test. And we wonder when the Bible tells us that God tempts no one, but he does test us. There's a very simple explanation. Temptations are meant for our ill, for defeat, for harm. Tests are meant by God for our good, for the proving of our faith. You see, it is not the action, it is in the intention. And God is testing this to see what repentance is in the lives of Joseph's brothers. Because you see, repentance is not just seeing your past sin. Repentance is not just being sorry for sin. If that's what you think repentance is, you'll forgive me, but you must repent of that. Repentance is seeing our sin, being sorry for sin, and then turning from sin. It is not true repentance if we do not leave the sin behind. This is the test that he is given. And then the steward follows through on Joseph's orders and comes to the brothers and we see the response that they give to this test. The steward says, why did you take this? And we see that there's still something of the old man in the brothers. They're incredulous. What are you talking about? Look at verse 7. Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Are you crazy? We wouldn't do this. You saw our integrity beforehand, how we gave you the money. And and then they become indignant. Look at verse 8. Behold, the money we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought. How then could we steal silver? Who do you think you are accusing us honest men? We're not those kind of men. You see, the problem is they have short memories. Because they are that kind of men. But for God. And you see, this leads them to a rash confidence. There is a boldness that they say in verse 9. They go beyond the extra mile. They say, look, whoever, whoever's bag you find the cup in, kill it. And we'll all be your slaves. Now, you can picture this in your mind's eye, can't you? This has happened in your homes. Every mom knows this. Mom says, would you go up and find that pair of socks? I don't have any socks anywhere. Really? No, I looked all day long and couldn't find them. Really? Mom, if you go up and you find a pair of socks, I will make your bed for two years. Well, I know I'm going to find the socks. And I know it's not worth my bed being made for two years. What do I do here? Right? You know these kind of rash, bombastic boasts. That's what Joseph's brothers are doing. No way. No how. And then you can imagine the scene. They open up the bags. And they go one by one from the eldest down through Simeon and Levi. See, not here. Judah, I told you we were men of integrity. Down through the others, Dan, Issachar. 
Down and down and down they go, and they finally get to Benjamin. And you can imagine the brothers. Ha, ha, ha! Come on! Benjamin's the best of all of us. There's no way he would take this. This is ridiculous. And they open it up, and the glint from the sun reflecting off the bowl hits them in the eyes, and they know they are undone in an instant. They don't know what to do. It's in Benjamin's sack. What idiots we are. We said kill the one who was, the bowl was in his sack. What do we do now? They're guilty. And they know it. But it's interesting how they express it. Do you see what Judah says? He says, God has found out our guilt. This is what he's thinking. And in silence, they pack up their donkeys and they go back to go to the grand vizier. Now, notice what they don't do. They don't protest. They don't say we're innocent. They don't say you've got the wrong man. They don't talk about what a good boy Benjamin is because they know they are found out. They know, just like they suspected with the money, that this is not about the man in Egypt. This is not about a bowl. This is about God tracking them down. They're laid bare before God. And before Joseph... They say, God has found our guilt. And this is a theme that goes throughout this whole chapter. The words found out or find out occur eight times in this chapter. In verse 8 and 9 and 10 and 12 and 16 and 17 and 34, over and over again there is this theme that they know that God is watching. Do you see the providence of God in your life? Do you know that God is watching? Because it's far too easy to pull the wool over your spouse, your parents, your children's eyes, and think you are pulling it over God's eyes as well. But you are not. The Lord sees all. And they're laid bare before God. And then there is this final and last test. Joseph looks at them. And he says, oh no, far be it from me to have such a harsh penalty upon you. Just the one who had the bowl will stay. And the rest of you go up, wait for it, in peace to your father. It hangs in the air. Can you imagine? The shifting of feet. The sweat on the brow. They sold their brother for 20 pieces of silver. Now will they sell another one for a much greater price? Their freedom? After all, they could go home and explain to Dad. He won't like it. But it's the reality of it. Dad, what could we do? He was the second in command. This is where we see the change that God brings in His people. You have regrets in life. I know you do because you're human. Even if you're young. And I hate to break it to you, the more that you grow in age, 
the more regrets you'll have. But you see, we see something here that is a principle that comes to us whether we are 6 or 66. And that is, God gives us the incredible blessing of a do-over. Do you see it? It's like playing baseball in the yard. And the ball hits a branch. Is he out? Is he safe? I don't know. Do-over. Act like it never happened. That's what's happening here for them. All of their past life, all of their sin, everything they regret, all of the bad choices, all of the guilt that they have, God is giving them here a do-over. And the do-over comes after God has already made the change. Do you see it? He doesn't say, like even some of us would say, I'll give you another chance at that. Prove to me you're worthy of the chance... And then we'll talk about whether you're off the hook. God says, you're off the hook. Here's the second chance to show yourself what I've done. Do you see it? They have a chance to do this. And Judah steps forward. This is a man who would not listen to the cries of his brother. A man who wanted to make money off of him. A man who was ready to kill his daughter-in-law. A man who was willing to walk up to his aged father and say, Tough luck, Pops. Your favorite son's dead. And stand there and watch him day after day, month after month, year after year in sadness. This is a man who was vile. And now because of what God has done in his life, the change that has been made, he steps forward and he says, I cannot hurt my father, sir. I will not do it. I gave him my word. I can't lie to him again. No matter what the consequences are, sir, I have got to take the penalty. Because I cannot be the man I was. I left him behind. Do you see that? He's not willing for Benjamin to suffer. He says, I will get in his place. And there is such a sweet irony here. Because the guilty is willing to suffer for the innocent one. Judah, who is guilty, is willing to suffer for the innocent Benjamin. And the only way that he can do this, the only way that a guilty man can be changed in this way is because... One who was innocent suffered for the guilty. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ reaches back all the way here to Judah and his brothers. God has changed his heart, not on a whim, not because Judah finally understood, but because of the grace that comes from the work of atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the substitute. And because of that, Judah is a changed man. He is changed toward others. He is changed toward Jacob. He is changed toward Benjamin. But most importantly, his heart has been changed toward the Lord. Do you see there is one thing missing in all of this conversation? Do you notice what Judah does not ask for? He does not ask for mercy. You see that? He doesn't plead for mercy for Benjamin or for their family 
for anyone else. You see, that's because he gets it. He knows he doesn't deserve mercy. There is a saying that goes, only the guilty think they deserve mercy. Those who are washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ know that they have been forgiven, not for their sake. They know they don't deserve mercy. They know they don't deserve what comes from the hand of God. That is how we pass the test. Because you see, the change starts from the inside and works its way out. It does not stay inside. If your heart has been changed, your body will be changed. Hearts that begin to pump blood, pump it into your limbs and into your face and your lungs fill with air and you begin to speak and you see when the dead come to life, they live again. And the question comes to you from this text, are you alive? If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then He has given you life and you must live. That is why He has given you life. You must act like one who has changed because you truly are. We're nearing the end of this magnificent story. There are ups and there are downs, just like in your life, just like in mine. But you see, the consistency through all of this is the work of the Lord. He is the one at work in the lives of His people. There is no sin so great, but that He cannot forgive it. This is the Lord that you serve. This day, as you go about your business, think on how the Lord has worked in your life, how, what He has saved you from, and what He is bringing you to. That work is ongoing in the life of every single believer in Jesus.